Hello and welcome to another episode of your new favorite podcast. I am Bethany Mandel and I am joined by my co-host Andrew Gutman. This is to take back our schools in which we talk about fashion. Just kidding. Talking about taking back our schools. So today we are joined by a fantastic guest, Paul Rossi. But before we introduce him and jump into our conversation, which is really long and really fascinating and is absolutely worth sticking around to the end of, we want to introduce ourselves. My name is Bethany Mandel. I am a mother of five and homeschooling mom, a contributing writer for Deseret News, and a, a editor of a new children's book series called Heroes of Liberty, which you should definitely check out. And I will let my co-host, Andrew, introduce himself and give you his, you know, 30-second soundbite. Sure. I'm Andrew Gutman, father of one, one 13-year-old girl, uh, education activist. And I just wrote a piece with Paul, our guest of this week in the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. So folks can find that. uh, It's called Inside the Woke Indoctrination Machine. Um, So if you want to pause this for like 15 seconds, not really a little bit more than that, and actually go to the Wall Street Journal's website and read it. It's fantastic. And then hit play on this on this episode, if I if I were giving you instructions on how to live your life, that's the instructions that I would give you. Um, but without further ado, there's so much else going on in the world, but this conversation is much more interesting than all of those things. Um, I want to jump into our conversation with Paul. All right, we've got a very special guest on this episode of Take Back Our Schools, Paul Rossi. Paul is a former math teacher at a fancy private school in New York City called Grace Church. He is now an activist, an investigative journalist, uh, contributor to Legal Insurrection, co-host of Chalkboard Heresy, a channel for dissidents in education. Anything else I should add? No, I think that that covers uh, that covers it. Thank you, Andrew. And so welcome to the show. Great to be here. And hello, Bethany. Hey, thanks for being here. Y'all wrote a Wall Street Journal op-ed that kind of sparked a lot of people. I think it would have caught my attention even actually it did. I can tell you this for a fact. It did catch my attention because I read it and I was like, this is fantastic. Who wrote this? And then I was like, no, I didn't know. I didn't know that you were publishing it. So I read it and I didn't, I didn't read the byline at first and I read it and I was like, this is fantastic. I want to, who is this? I want to know this person. And I was like, I already know that person. It's not exciting (laughs) anymore. But it you is only knew half of us. Now you know the other half. <laughs> there you go. Well, why do you think I did this? This is okay. all self-serving on my part. Yeah. <laughs> so do y'all sort of attribute both of your notoriety to Barry Weiss? Is that accurate? Definitely. Who, by the way, did not retweet our article. We'll just put that out there. I'm sure. Did you text it to her? <laughs> <laughs> no hard feelings. You know, everyone's got their reasons. <laughs> so, you know, what's funny we found out today and we'll get into this, but um, so we've sort of been linked since we both kind of went viral on Barry Weiss's site. You know, Paul published on Barry and I, she just picked up my thing after I had mailed right. it to all the parents, right? It turns out that the day I wrote the letter was the day that you were on, that you published on Barry's site, right? April 13th. Yeah, and that was, that was when you, did, is that when the day that you sent it to all 600 and- So that's the day, apparently that's the date of the letter. I haven't seen it in a while. We wow. found that out doing wow. another podcast today. Let's just take us to today. So you were a math teacher at Grace Church and, and very famously and very bravely um, wrote, spoke publicly or wrote publicly about what was going on at, at Grace. So you want to talk just like briefly about that? Sure. Uh, I, 
I had been a teacher there since 2012 and uh, Grace started, it's, that's when Grace started its high school. Um, it had been and, ha and continues to be a K through eight school with a rich history, 100, 100 years old, over 100 years old. And uh, from its inception, it was really designed to be a progressive school that would uh, mold students to have a certain type of social justice orientation. But over the years as uh, 2014, 2015, and then with the election of Trump, uh, it really just became more and more extreme. We began to adopt uh, it as part of our mission that we were an anti-racist school, so-called. And what came with that was a lot of baggage and uh, programming around anti-racism um, and anti-bias training. DEI and those things really start to change the atmosphere in the school um, that I noticed in my classes with my students and also with assemblies, the way that the head of school and the administration were being extremely heavy handed around issues of, of words equaling violence in particular. And there were some incidents within the school and you know surrounding in the in the wider world that all sort of combined to make this kind of crucible where these these ideas just started to get uh, more and more intense and then of course uh, after george floyd it, it we had uh we had to cancel the last week of school and finals and we had three days of workshops around anti-racism and anti-bias and then um, over the summer of course there was the black at Instagram accounts that uh, became, you know, they became extremely um, uh, tended to. And then uh, really for me, the final breaking point was February of 2021. Uh, there was a self-care through an anti-bias lens training that was on Zoom that was segregated training for whites only faculty and students in one Zoom room and, and uh, BIPOC faculty and students in another, BIPOC standing for black and indigenous, or black or indigenous people of color. And when they started to preach to the kids about white supremacy culture and the various components of, of that so-called uh, things like objectivity and um, individualism and a right to comfort, these things all being bad I spoke up at that meeting and that really set in motion a chain of events so, uh, where two two months later, my article, I published my article and I had been working on that for about three to four weeks before that. So that was sort of the inception. And then succeeding events happened where I had meetings with the administration and uh, the administration, once my article came out, challenged the veracity of my claims and then I I said, well, you actually agreed with me to the headmaster and he denied it. And so I released a tape where he did admit to the things that much of what I was trying to communicate in the article, namely there was a demonization of students that were deemed oppressors. Uh, and, you know, uh, and that was having a, a negative impact on both the school and the, and the children, but he didn't seem willing to do anything about it at the time. So that's what really kind of uh, created some sensation, uh, I think, in the private school world. Right now, there are, there are actually 
rewriting some rules at other schools in the New York area to, to prevent the faculty from recording sessions. Uh, so if, if faculty are found recording any of their meetings with their administration that they can be dismissed. And they call that the, the Paul Rossi rule now because, wow. uh, because, of, uh, for, for, because of what I did. So leading up to that decision to, to publish that letter. So how did you get in touch with Barry and did you, did you warn anyone or did you just like nuke them? Um, for answering your first question, yes, I've been working with an organization called FAIR, Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. And um, people there put me in touch with Barry and uh, started to work through some of these things um, ahead of time. And I had been in Dutch with the school. Uh, I don't think that they realized what I was going to do before I did it. So in some ways, yeah, I just kind of, I did catch them unawares uh, with that article. And I think it did cause, you know, it caused a lot of consternation in the school, obviously. Yeah. So what day of the week did that publish on Barry's Substack? Do you remember? I don't remember the day of the week. It's interesting. Because it, it, I want to know what yeah. work was like that day and the next well, day. Well, that was the thing. Like, I think I was not actually in school at that time because it was, it might've been spring break or we might've been like a remote week or something like an end of the quarter remote week. So I didn't go in that week. And then subsequent to that article, there were things that happened and I wound up not going back to the school, even though I very much wanted to. Um, I wanted to go back and teach in person, which is what I was supposed to do. And then they they reassigned my classes. And the way that that unfolded was, be, uh, was a little bit complicated, but essentially I received a threatening email a menacing email from a member of the community. I reported it and this administration took that as evidence that I wasn't welcome. So you never taught again? No, I, ne I, I never taught. Uh, I, I did a couple of meetings, but I'd never taught another class after that. I didn't know that, okay. Yeah. Did you yeah. ever get to say goodbye to your students? Like uh, what, what kind nope. of closure did you get? None, no, no. Um, they tried, they actually creatively came up with this idea that I would work, I would work with the assistant head of school on a task force to address some of the issues around anti-racism at the school. I, I realized that it was not going to, I wasn't going to be allowed in a room with other people to discuss it with them. Um, so I just, I figured that this was just a way for them to kind of co-opt me and put me in a rubber room. So I didn't agree to it. Uh, and they did say, you know, we will, we, we will give you the chance to come back next year, but you have to attend a restorative justice training session where you can, you can repair the harm that you caused to the students of color and the other students at the school. And this was consistent with, you know, the, the, the essential framework of the school, which is um, differences in speech, differences in opinion, really can are translate into potential harm, uh, which could rise to the level of violence. There was a meeting that I remember from 2019 where Hugo Mahabir, the, the current head of the high school, 
uh, told the entire school at an assembly that, uh, you know, racist words, whether intentional or not, if they're perceived to be racist, uh, they can cause harm that could rise to the level of using a knife or a gun on someone. And he used that phrase, a knife or a gun. Uh, and so in that atmosphere, what kind of viewpoint diversity are you really going to have if you can't control the impact of your statements? Um, you have to pitch to the lowest common denominator in terms of who's going to be offended. So that really, I think, had a, a major chilling effect even before George Floyd um, on, the, on the classes. Now, I'm, I'm mostly a math teacher, but I also did teach a class in philosophy. I taught a Stoic a Stoic philosophy class, an existentialism class, and a persuasion class. And I began to notice the, that's where I really saw the debates uh, really become very stilted. Uh, and it was very difficult to, to elicit genuine opinions from the class. Is that because the kids were scared? Yeah, um, I think definitely. I mean, there was one, there was one occasion where that just, you know, is a good example. There were many, but the one that sticks with me is there was a student talking about the post-George Floyd murder riots. And he was saying, you know, that, well, during the, you know, there were riots and then three people jumped on him and said, no, they're protests. And he, and he kind of shrank back and said, yes, protests, protests. Um, and then, you know, it was, it was just very creepy sometimes. What would, you know, and there were really just certain scripted things that the kids kept having to say, you know, the, the, the as, a, as a person of color, as a white person, I think X. And so it was just this total identification with their own thoughts and ideas um, conforming to some idea of what, it, what an authentic opinion would be for your skin color, for your gender, uh, for your sexual preference. And it just, it's the absolute opposite of what a healthy climate for discussion really is, can be. Would it be fair to say that you were a founding sort of faculty member at the school? For the high school, yes, I was in the, the founding faculty. Ideologically, I assume back in 2012, like this was, this was your jam, right? Like you were ideologically aligned with all of your colleagues? Pretty much. I mean, I was mostly, I was a career changer. I, I was... I had in 2010 gotten a master's for teaching and I, you know, I had been uh, in corporate America. I worked for HBO, um, HBO.com. So it was a completely different atmosphere. It was one that was much more collegial. People were friendlier. There wasn't a, a clear reporting structure. I had a lot of independence as a teacher. I really, I really enjoyed it a lot. And yeah, I was a liberal. I mean, I was um, progressive. Uh, in many ways. And I remember we went on a, uh, in 2014, um, the teachers had to attend a, a training session, like a, a two to three day boot camp. I think I did it in two days, but most teachers did it in three. And it was called Undoing Racism. And it was led by uh, a group called the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond. And I remember going to that and sitting in a circle and just having this real conversion moment where I embraced you know, these anti-racist principles and um, had a real sort of, uh, I guess I would say like uh, kind of a woke conversion experience. Now it kind of wore off in the year subsequent to that, but I, 
I do remember what it felt like. And I remember the conditions that caused it to happen within me. And it really is an embodied thing. It's like you are experiencing a kind of transcendent togetherness uh, with, with these ideas. And, you know, I, I, I'm actually really glad I went through that because it, it helps for me to understand what, uh, what it really means to experience it for others and, and what's motivating them psychologically. So wait, just to be clear, that you said that was back in 2014? 2014, yeah. That so we're talking on. six years before George Floyd, BLM yeah. stuff. Is that, is the, you know, the whole push towards the anti-racism initiatives or CRT or whatever you want to call it that happened? I mean, we, had it been going on that long? You I know, mean, it's we, funny. There really is a, there really is a long current of activism that that I would say there's two streams. So there's all of the, the theory that came out of the ed schools and, and the, the critical legal studies and, and and that sort of thing. But then there's also a real activist tradition that that came that sort of sort of stayed uh, on the West Coast and then moved back east. So there were these groups that would do community organizing, and there were there was this sort of cross pollination between the academy and these these really groups that were in the field. Uh, doing social activism, uh, community activism, and that sort of thing. So some of the ideas that we saw, Andrew, in our, um, in our uh, 108 hours uh, you know, death march that we watched all these videos, some of them, like the white supremacy culture stuff, is really old. It's like 20 years old. So uh, um, it's, it's interesting how the cross-pollination goes on between those two camps. So I, I, we'll get we'll get to the yeah. The, the, I, yeah. So okay. So 2014, you did this, and you were not opposed to what they were teaching at that point. Is I that, mean, I, is it, or, I, or you I were, wasn't. I don't okay. think I. I don't think I. The first inkling that something might be wrong came in 2015. And in okay, 2015, that was my question. Yeah. yeah How did okay. you get to this transition? Right. So in 2015, we all came in for the fall. We sat down and the first faculty meeting of the year, and the head of school. George Davidson presented us with a, with a basic pronouncement. And that pronouncement was, we are now an anti-racist school. That's who we are. We've changed the mission. Anti-racist is who we are. You know, and I, I hadn't, I think, I don't think they raised that term in the meeting that I was in in 2014, but it was something that was used to describe, but it wasn't actually part of the, com the commitment. And when I heard that as a commitment, I started to feel like, well, what if, well, who knows what racist is? What is it? Who gets to tell? Who gets to define what racist is? So it was really just a logical inkling that something was off because if you don't know, you have to be very clear about what it is you're against. If you're not very clear about what it is you're against, and if that has any concept creep, then you can lead to the situations where you can be implicated in something just because you have a higher sensitivity to what you might think racism is. And so, who do you depend on to define what racism is so that you can? know exactly what you're against. And I raised those issues and, and I was told, no, don't worry about it. We're gonna figure it out. We're gonna take it on a case by case basis. There really was, it was totally ad hoc. There was no hard lines about what it is to be racist and what it isn't. So it could be systemically racist or institutionally racist uh, or just racist, personally racist. And there were lots of different definitions of it, but you know, as we, we all know, systemic racism Sort of became this thing that was the you know definitional around uh, such a wide variety of things that 
just a basic disparity could be structural racism or, 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 or um, you know, systemic racism. And that, you know, that's when it started to get to me a little bit. Was anyone else concerned about this lack of definition and, and sort of on their heels a little bit? I mean, so first of all, let me just ask. So I'm looking at your face. So I presume that you self-identify as a white man. Is that a fair assumption? I don't. <laughs> How do you self-identify? I don't, I don't. I mean, that's a really, really good question. I'd love to get into it. Um, okay. I, I look white. People look at me. They see a white person. Okay. Um, and this is part of, part of my objection to race, the way it's talked about today. Um, okay. You're not really a woman, are you? Now, you know, I'd have to say no. I am okay. a man. But uh, I... I uh, by their own definition, race is a social construction, okay? So that means that you are white or you are black because other people say you are, because you are perceived as that. And they'll use the term pass. You pass as white, I am perceived as black. So that is who, you know, that's, I identify as that because that's what, I, that's what I'm seen as, right? That's how I'm treated. That's how other people perceive me. That's why I can't get a cab. That's why cops are always after me. That's, that's the definition is essentially like my skin is definitional. You know, in my case, maybe I have privileges because people look at me and they see this wonderful, beautiful being and they like to give me stuff. Um, you know, I don't think that's true, but it's based on how you're perceived. So in that, I think it's really important for people to reclaim their existential identity around their right to define, right? So who you are perceived as is not who you are. And just the same way that if everyone said that you should jump off a bridge, should you jump off a bridge? I don't think so. I, um, so my mom, who was like a dyed in the wool blue liberal, used to uh, self identify on forms as either a Native American because she was native to America. My mother was, you know, she was born in America, or she was African American because all of us were once of africa and so that was that was how she got some that's scholarships. clever i like yeah yeah I like and that. this i mean this was like you know 25 30 years ago and she was like yeah i got so many scholarships and then people would see me and be like mm. but everyone was afraid to ask any questions because how dare, dare you yeah exactly exactly, exactly yeah. yeah so my mom was like on the vanguard of this i was asking that question because like what was the racial makeup of your colleagues was it a whole bunch of white people sort of ritually um like lashing themselves like what 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 does the like what does grace school look like it was actually pretty diverse um from from the beginning and became more diverse uh we had i think um we had a fairly diverse entry opening class in 2000 the, the class of 2016 um and you know it became more so i think so there certainly were those those people considered white that that uh, did that sort of self-flagellating. There was a, there was a lot of stress put on the importance of letting students be themselves. That was the sort of the mantra that we're going to students need to when they come to our school they need to feel comfortable, you know, as themselves. But what that meant in practice was slightly different. What it what it seemed to mean was that if you were a student who was black or, or, or seen as black and considered themselves as black, then you should feel comfortable with a certain political identity that was, that was derived from that. And that 
they would, you know, to be truly yourself, to be truly authentic meant that uh, during Black History Month celebrations, you had to dress up in black clothes and you had to get up there and recite angry, you know, poetry. And you had to do these things. Um, you know, many, I, I'm, I'm not sure, and I don't, I, actually, I'm sure that, that not everyone was into that. But we would have these spectacles that were, you know, really just sort of, you know, a kind of form of, uh, I guess, racial posturing in a way. And that was seen as being authentic. Uh, and then the, the administration would sort of pat each other on the head and, and they would say, oh, aren't we good? Aren't we good people? Because we let the students be themselves. Um, now, there is called there are cultural differences, certainly, between groups, in, you know, in any institution. But the way it was sort of weaponized in a performative way um you know it was it was a very strange thing to see was there was there socioeconomic diversity amongst the student body we had you know grace is one of the things that i admired about the school was it had uh the largest i think of of the major high schools the major private high schools it has the largest financial aid um of any of them so you know 30 percent or uh I'm not exactly sure what the numbers were, but there were a significant amount receiving full aid and then 28 percent. I was literally was, looking it up when Andrew asked because nice, I was like, yeah. How, what is this tuition? 28 percent right. received financial aid. Yeah. Yeah. So um, could you as a teacher, could did you I mean, it seems like an obvious you know, answer or obvious question, but the, the, the tensions between you know, groups of kids of different socioeconomic statuses, I mean, you, you know, in a what is now a sixty thousand dollar year private school. Yeah, I, don't know what I it mean, it's difficult because the tensions, it's hard to know because the intervention was already going on, what they would have been without a lot of this heightened awareness of race and so on. But there's certainly difficulties when you have kids talking about where they went on vacation and one of the kids has gone to Queens and spent time in a two-room apartment taking care of their nephew. And then the other kid is in you know the Bahamas. So that's gonna cause, that's gonna cause some you know, social dislocation and maybe some resentment. Um, but uh, the way they dealt with it was to explicitly racialize it. And, you know, maybe that's because in a city, a big city that tends to map a little bit one onto the other. And, and it's a little bit easier maybe for people with money uh, who run these places to deflect that on something like race rather than to be so crass as to discuss you know wealth and income directly so it, it's a it's a way of hiding the ball i think for a lot of people that that run these institutions and say well listen you know I, it's not that i have money it's that we are all white whether we have money or not that and sounds that's pretty racist honestly it's, like oh, it's yeah, not that yeah. it's not it's just that i'm white it's just right. all black people are the ones that don't have the money you're like hmm, that's oh awful. yeah no it's completely it's extremely it's completely racist. racist yeah 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 it's extremely racist so i don't want to run out of time in our conversation so i'm i'm going to to move a little bit uh, sure i'm going to fast forward for anyone who hasn't read the wall street journal op-ed that you have currently displayed over your shoulder <laughs> Uh, which I love. I'm proud. It's, I'm proud. You should be. I've never been published in the Wall Street Journal. That's like my, that's the last place I've never been published. Um, been in the Times? Yeah, a couple yeah. times. Wow. Yeah. I'll never be in the Times now. <laughs> you'd be surprised, actually. I, I like really crapped on them like a year ago. And then they asked me to write something and I was like, 
Okay. And I fully anticipated them ghosting me because they've done that to me before too. And then they actually published it. I was sort of surprised. Um, But so, okay. So it's called Inside the Woke Indoctrination Mafia. Is that the last word? I'm looking over your shoulder. Machine. 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 Oh, you can read that? Oh my God. I can't even read that. Oh, really? No, I can totally read it. No, we didn't pick that title. Oh, yeah. Of course, you never do. So, um, so it was fascinating. So the two of you co-wrote it and you put yourselves through like torture, the, the hoops of hell. <laughs> torture. Paul might um, have enjoyed it more than I did. So, I did kind of enjoy it in a twist. You did. I could still get the sense yeah. of Paul was enjoying it. And I'm, I'm just like dying watching these things. I know. I bet. So how many hours was this? 180? No, it was like it was over 100 hours, but it was, oh, it was 108, 108 sessions. 108. Okay. I yeah. knew there right, were a new 100 and then there was an eight. Yeah. So <laughs> who had to do more of this? Let's, let's talk about that. Who did, who did the lion's share of listening to this stuff? I, I started out doing a lot of the listening, but then I think okay. Andrew caught up to me because he, okay. he got into yeah. it. Because I, I needed had, to understand I, it. Yeah, okay. yeah. And I was hoping just to watch a few. And I was so, hoping Paul would do all the work. And then I realized <laughs> to actually understand this, I have to do the work. So, well, so I'm we both wound up. You wrote I, a draft and I wrote a draft. And then we just went with your draft because you didn't like my draft. And that's fine. It worked out. That's fair. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm currently working on a project with someone else. And it's like similar. It's like, who, who's going to do the lion's share of this work? And it seems, yeah. it seems pretty even, but we'll see. So, um, so there's 108 sessions. And how did you get? So, first of all, what were the sessions? Is my first question. And the second question is, how did you get access to them? And were, because they weren't publicly accessible. That's something that you made very clear in your piece. Yeah. They were, uh, the, we had sources, we had multiple sources that Love made it. them available. Uh, so, uh, and it wasn't, it, it wasn't cheap. So this was like, uh, I think, what was it? 600 to a thousand on the website. It said that they were, they cost um, to co- to go to this thing and it was all virtual. Okay. So, and I think they had 6,000 attendees. So just to be clear, yeah. normally this conference is in person, Okay. but like a lot of things in the last few years because of COVID, this was online, which is why okay. we were able to get access to it. So you signed up. Or you got access to the tapes afterwards. You don't want to tell me. We have You're multiple looking. sources. Okay, fine. So that was a really good journalistic answer. So you listen to these tapes. And what, so what was the conference about? So the theme of the conference was um, rolling with just intent. Do you remember? Like rolling you, with the homies? Yeah, from- I guess. Like... Uh, there was a there was a first part of the phrase, which I think I blocked out because I've saw it so many times. <laughs> but rolling with just intent was was a major theme, uh, and it was a combination of of really two things. It was it was billed as a kind of safe space for BIPOC and white allies to gather and 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 feel a sense of belonging. Okay, um, so for for who is the audience exactly? They're teachers, right? Teachers and administrators. So, okay. you know, not of private schools of or private any schools, school. okay. private schools in particular. And, and they were sponsored by the National Association of Independent Schools, the NAIS, okay. which um, is sort of the, the octopus at the heart of a lot of this. Um, mm-hmm. And what we found was, you know, not a lot of kumbaya and a whole lot, some kumbaya, but 
mostly teacher training, very specific teacher training about how to push these ideas in the classroom and how to push it through your schools. For administrators, you know, how to get parents to go along with it, how to, you know, how to basically muscle it in. Wow. And, so uh, yeah. is this a mandatory conference or is it totally optional? It's typically, uh, I, it's not mandatory. Okay. Because it's terrifying, go. depending yeah. on your answer, it's terrifying in two directions. Either people have to go to this or it's like this woke. The latter. <laughs> yes. People yeah. want to go to this. Oh, yeah, yeah, they in want fact, it because they, they want to like. Yes. Push this down people's yes. throats. This yeah. is DEI training, right? So this yeah. is DEI practitioners, teachers, and, and all these schools are on board with this. Wow. And so there are sessions where they talk about how to get the board of trustees or how to get the administration of the schools to sp- send more people to these conferences. How do you get more money for this? How do you get more people to attend this? In fact, they even talk about it. There's there are sessions on, you know, becoming a DE, head of DEI. They talk about, well, you've got to write it into your contract that you will be able to go to this conference or you'll be able to send, you know, six people in your team to this kind of conference. People want to be here. Yeah. I remember when people would come back from the conference when I was at Grace, you know, when it was still in person, uh, people would just be shining with the light of just truth. Like they would be like, you have to go. It's, it's incredible. It, It completely changed my life. And, uh, they would send students too. So students go to this as well, but they go to this, the concurrent student diversity leadership conference and where they're watched over and sort of shepherded by adults. Um, and, you know, there's, it's very, very secretive what goes on at the student one. Mm. Um, they don't share any, obviously they don't share anything out of it, but they're, it, it sounds very culty to me. I Coleman Hughes yeah. has actually, you know, talked about that in, a, in an interview. He went to it. And he talks about it being very sort of morose kind of place where people are are sharing stories that maybe they haven't, you know, on one on the one hand, sharing experiences they haven't had a chance to share, but also it being weaponized and politicized in this way, um, you know, into the ideology. So that's also going on. How different do you think it was online versus in person? Because it does sound, I mean, you compare it in your piece to uh, to like Maoist sort of experience. I, I have a friend who went on to like an in-person conference like this and just came back a completely different person. He like left as a pro-Israel activist and came, and then he did this program in the West Bank and came back and was never the same. And he was like, Mm -hmm. you know, basically Hamas. So it was was crazy. I would say this conference is not directly converting people because the people are already converted. Converted, yeah. It's more like training the cadres how to train those child soldiers. So it's that sort of sense. like a, a different level. But yeah, no, I mean it is absolutely they're they're training child soldiers in their woke war. Yeah. And watching the I, I learned a lot more. I mean I think we both learned a lot more than we could fit in ten, in a thousand words. So we love to we love to write a longer piece, but um and, and, you know, I think Andrew nailed it with his draft in getting the, you know, boiling it down to the, to the true essentials. Um, did it, did anything surprise you? I mean, this was more new to me than it was to you. I mean, you having yeah. gone through a lot more of this training as a teacher, you have, you know, I never heard of this conference before. I never really knew what the NAIS was before. You obviously did being a teacher. I mean, was there anything in this that was 
just really eye-opening or shocking to you? I mean, it was all kind of shocking to me. The ideology, I was mostly familiar with it. Um, and the academic, the intellectual foundations and all that, I, I kind of knew. What, what surprised and frightens me more than I was before is the, the way it's pushed into the, the elementary schools, the kindergarten, what I was seeing about it from teachers that were second grade teachers, fourth grade teachers, fifth grade teachers, and how they, they're very sophisticated in how that they will create a kind of collectivist morality in the class that has nothing necessarily to do with politics at first. And then they layer the politics on top of that. So they are able to instantiate this classroom culture around certain maxims like impact over intent or, you know, uh, silent or, 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 you know, speech can be violent. And then they put the politics on top of that. So that's what, because once you, once you instantiate those moral precepts, then everything really flows from that. And they'll do things like they'll use the word reparations in a non-political context, just so when they get to have a debate about slavery and reparations, they're already primed. Like that kind of thing, the sophistication of that really surprised me. And that's something I really want to expose. Like that, I, that needs to get out there because they're substituting a kind of collectivist morality just around a kind of animalistic pleasure and pain principle that is not at all the Judeo-Christian principles that, that have, they've supplanted. And then they're putting the politics on top of that. And if there was, you know, if there was one big surprising takeaway was that how that's actually happening right now. Like it's happening. In kindergarten. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's one, one um, seminar that we referenced in the article uh, called uh, small activists, big impact. I think that was the name of it. Yeah, I think that. so. And uh, it's about the teacher presenter describes, she's a kindergarten teacher herself and she describes how she uses the natural fairness of children to turn them towards social justice issues and how she first starts them in a place where they come to value themselves and their own preferences and their own interests and, and really come to a healthy sense of self. And then she draws on their empathy towards others, towards each other. And then the, the, they get into some identity work. So that identity may slowly be led towards social identities like race and gender. And then she says, you know, now we're going to move and now we're going to move into the social justice realm because we've really laid the foundations. And there is an intellectual, there, there's scholarship that she's drawing from on how to do this. Uh, there's a scholar named Brie Picower who has sequenced uh, how you can basically push social justice and education and you, you do have to lay this moral foundation. So, you know, she's explaining how to do that uh, with kids that just have no ability to understand what's happening to them and parents have no idea this is happening so right. when i hear a certain strain uh of you know a political position that says well we need to have we can't ban crt you know we need to teach the controversy we need to have both sides you know maybe that's okay in high school uh maybe maybe not, i mean i don't think even till like you know 11th or 12th maybe introduce right. it as a possible but you know you're talking here about k through six k through eight there's no way that you can entertain that stuff as a moral foundation. You need to have a consistent moral foundation, one based on the, the liberal traditions that, you know, we have always had right. around the, the, 
you know, the divinity essentially of the individual and the, and the, the importance of the individual. Uh, and, you know, you can't, you really can't teach incommensurate moral systems at that, at that level. So, um, you know, that, that was, that's really the thing that I'm most disturbed and kind of interested in right now is how do we, how do we make that case to people who don't know what's going on? I think my first question is, so I, I feel like when you're spending $60,000 to spend your kids to Grace Church School, you're, you're all in, like you're okay with this. Is that, is that sort of the understanding of, of the, the people who are at this conference that the people who are there, the parents have, have bought into this? Because I think that there is a difference between indoctrinating children against their parents will and not. I mean, maybe that's. I, 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 no, I think I, that that's I a line. Agree. That's, you know, and you, you do you, just private schools. You should be able to teach. That's why you go to private school, right? You get what you want. And, and if that's what you want, that's what you should get. What, what's Andrew, I think wants, would, would be able to talk about more is um, they self-consciously know that parents don't want this. They are very conscious of the pushback and they are very strategic in how they get around it. And how do they sessions. get around it? And how do they get around it? Yeah. Some, some, well, up until and including, you know, telling parents this is not the place for you. Um, so they've written it. Kicking you know, them so out of the schools. Kicking them out, yeah. right? Okay. They've, they've written this into the, the enrollment contracts. They have written this into the admissions essays you have to write to get into these schools. You have to say you're an anti-racist or you subscribe to this. It, it's, it's quite devious. And Paul's right. I mean, they're very conscious that there's pushback. It's interesting in one a lot of the sessions talk about parent pushback in this. Um, there, there's, there's a lot of, uh, some of the sessions are run by uh, DEI people or teachers from the West Coast. And there were a bunch from Portland, Seattle. I remember one, I forget if it was Portland or Seattle, that they said, they're talking about parent pushback or there's a question on parent pushback. And they said, yeah, we don't, we don't have, we don't really have the pushback that you have on the East Coast here, which I, which I thought was, was kind of interesting, but they are, they are very conscious of it. Uh, this is not something that most parents want. And there was that, you know, there's one where the, the presenter like openly suggests like opacity, like, you know, don't talk oh, about it. That's a good point. one. Yeah. Don't talk about what we're doing. We're trying to transform a whole, whole school because you're just going to give, you know, people who are not on board the idea that they have a say and they don't. Yeah. Like, they the they were very explicit about it. Explicit about yeah. not being transparent about this stuff. That was an eye opening one. I guess the, so the understanding is that this is just not something that the parents want and not something that parents need. And that's just, so when you sign this contract, do, are who reads the fine print? I mean, does anyone know? No, nobody. In fact, they don't even let you print it. They don't what? really let you download it anymore. It's all through an electronic system that it is almost impossible to get. Nobody No, It's, it's really, really, really crazy. So is there a step? I mean, there, there has to be a step between I heard you're teaching my child this and you're kicked out of school. So what is that yeah. step? There may be many steps. And, and what I saw parents who were, who were concerned about anything else going on at the school is they humor you. They humor you. They, they set a meeting two months future. They end the meeting early. They placate you. I, mean, I don't know what you got, Andrew, but I saw that happening a lot um, where they were deflecting and deflecting. Yeah. Yeah. They'll, they'll, they'll host, okay, we're going to host 
we'll have 20 parents. So we know there's, we know there's a lot of questions. They say there's questions on our anti-racist initiatives. We'll host, you know, 20, 20 people, and then they'll pick who's amongst those 20, you know, per division or something like that. Um, they, they are very sophisticated now about deflecting the pushback. Um, one thing interesting, I, I just had an opportunity to talk to a few parents at my daughter's former school. One of them who said, listen, I think that they've actually pulled back a little bit from this, which, which I didn't think was right. Uh, and then two other moms came up to us after that and said, no, it's just now completely hidden. They are not communicating anything to parents. Before a year ago, you'd get weekly DEI emails about what's going on, about all the assemblies, about now there's nothing. So parent, a lot of parents think that they have pulled back from this when in fact they have not. They've just gone even deeper with the kids and, and hidden everything. And that's what all of these 1600 schools in sort of this NAIS umbrella are on the same path with this. Barry got a lot of pushback, I think, by sort of platforming y'all because who cares what's happening at these private schools for these uber rich people because they've made their bed and now they can lie in it. That was the sort of argument that I heard about Barry's platforming of, of both of you pretty simultaneously. And her response... I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit, was basically, these are the people that are, are the elites. These are the, this is training of the elites. And these folks are training future Fortune 500 companies and future, you know, legislatures and, I mean, you name it. So what do you see if, if you, like, had a magic ball and were able to say, this matters because X and this is... You know, think about your average student in one of your classes, Paul, who is he going to be and how is this training that his teacher experienced going to impact his worldview and how, how, how did it impact your, your students' worldviews and what kind of adults are they going to turn into and what kind of world are we going to have in 30 years when these are the folks in charge? Well, it would depend on what identity bucket you fall into and it would also depend on how much you buy into it. So I have... Some students, some students came to me, um, you know, I, and I started to sort of um, speak with them informally uh, about what they thought of my article and what they, you know, what did they think about. Wait, so you the, had, a, wait, I'm confused. I thought you yeah. didn't have access to your students ever again. Well, there were some students that reached out. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. And uh, I did, you know, have some informal conversations with parents as well. You okay. Know, that parents were involved. So uh, you know, I was sort of, I said, be, be very conservative and tell me like how, how, what percentage of the kids really bought into this? I had, I had my own sort of ideas, but, you know, they said there was a major gender gap uh, in that, you know, 80% of the girls really bought yeah. into it and only about half the boys. Uh, so there's that. Um, and it's that empathy thing, right? Is that a maybe, fair? It's, that's, that's a good, that's one thing that's part of it. The other thing is that the collectivist morality, it seems to play better among the girls just because. As a former teenage girl, I can confirm that's the case. Yeah, it's like if you step, if you try to think you're better than everyone else, that's not good in a group of girls. And it's terrifying at an old girls school, I'll tell you that. Mm. Yeah, no, I only have had a female friends in my adulthood and we were all sort of the rejects because girls are, it's not, it's teenage girls. It's not a good scene. 
So, okay. So 80% of girls have bought in 50% of boys have bought in. What does it mean for the people who bought in? And what does it mean for the people who learn to lie? Which is worse, right? Is it worse that you, you grow up habituated to lying and to squelching your thoughts? Um, or is it worse that you're a true believer? In some ways, I think it's better if you're a true believer because then you're used to, you're given at least the confidence that what you think is something you should be able to say, right? And then if you change your mind, I think later in life, then you may not have the same damage that you get if you are asked to pretend and you learn the habit of pretending and you think that's the way to, that's the way to be. Um, there's that problem. Then there's the problem where if you're in the oppressor bucket, you kind of learn how to, well, you have to the sensitive kids who fall into that bucket. Well, they're going to do a lot of really bad soul searching and, and punishment, self-punishment around that self-flagellation and so on to the kids who are in the oppressed bucket, they're going to sort of have a sense that their liberation is dependent on the oppressor, right? So I'm not, you know, my situation is dependent on these people who are oppressing me uh, and that they need to change because that's the message. The message is, you know, to the white kids is what are you going to do? What are you going to do about this racism, about this white supremacy that you all benefit from? It's on you. And they're told that. Uh, and that's, it's, it's bad. It's bad no matter who you are. Um, so, there's that element of bad, bad. Um, how do you get back to sanity? You just have to throw it all out. I mean, this all has to go. You have to create a new institution. You have to create, you know, a classical ed school that's based around the, the sanctity of the individual and, and the sense of transcendent belonging that we all have as individuals and build off of that because this thing is not working. Do you think these schools are savable? You think they're absolutely done? I don't see how, I really, I don't see how they could be because they're so deep in it and, and there's so many credentials wrapped around everyone that's involved that for them to actually change, you would just, it would have to be like in a different dimension. Like I don't see how- Multiverse. Yeah, like in the, and maybe in the metaverse, we can make our school. Here's a question that also was posed to Barry and I don't know if I agree with her answer, but I'm going to pose it to both of you. And then I, I, I want to. So now we're finding out why she doesn't return our phone calls. <laughs> and why we haven't gotten invited right. to Shabbat dinner, right? Okay, yeah, go ahead. There you go. Well, you're not okay. in California. Here's, here's the question that was posed to her. Why do you send your children to these schools? $60,000 for them to be indoctrinated. Why, why, are, why do you care? Just walk away. This is garbage. You recognize that it's garbage. Walk away. That's what I did. I know. Yeah. Nobody else. I mean, Paul did too. So, but I mean, but you know, people who didn't walk away, who agree with you and didn't walk away. So why aren't they walking away? Teacher or parent? Let's start with Paul. Both. Andrew, you answer for the parent and Paul, you answer for the teacher. A, there's absolutely nowhere else to go. There's no alternative. New York City has schools. They're all like this. No, they're not. Public well, unless you go pretty far religious. Right. Really far religious. Right. And, and, and you know, to some people, they're considering that. I mean, I've, I've heard of Jewish families that are considering there's one very good classical Christian school. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But there's, 
it's hard. I mean, and the closer that you get to your, your kid's age to, you know, college admissions, the harder it is to make a switch. Right. Public okay. schools are not an option for most. Some families have moved to Florida or, or some other red state, uh, but almost nobody feels like there's an alternative. Okay. And very few people will homeschool like you do. Right. Do you think, Andrew, you mean, we've talked about this. Do you think that there's just a, a real sense that their parents are willing to sacrifice for the brand and sacrifice for the status and, and all that? Like, well, yeah, I've said this a lot. I yeah. mean, that, that's why most parents send their kid to these schools. It's, it's for not their for own the education. Well, it's for their own, but it's also for the ticket, you know, the track, right? The ticket right. to the Ivy League school, to Goldman Sachs or McKinsey or, or what have you. And they're not ready to get off that track. Right. So, you know, there, there is a segment of the population. I mean, the Asian community, which which really does tend to care about education in these schools, you know, they'll just go along with this. But then they're going to supplement outside of school a lot more than they even did before because they realize they're not. That was ba- that was basically Barry's answer. Paul, what about you? What I mean, not about you, but like, what about your. Well, most of my colleagues, uh, I think, separate, like maybe a different population than the parents. They were true believers. They were in it. Like this is it. This is this is why they got into education. Many of them, especially wow. particularly the younger ones, like they went in to change the world, and they want change to change the world in their own right. Change in their yeah. in their own idea of what the utopia is going to be. You know, they yeah. wanted to have they, and this is a big difference between them and me. If there was going to be one major fault line, it is that I want the children to learn how to succeed in the society they're in, and if they want to change it. If they notice things are wrong, I want them to have the power to do that. But I want them to learn society first and to like understand how to make it. Yeah. Um, what the other teachers want, many of my other colleagues are, they don't want them to adapt to society necessarily. They want them to, they want them to maladapt and so that they can change it. And they focus constantly on you know, social change, social change. These are the things that are wrong. These are the terrible, terrible inequalities and awful, awful, awful things about the world. Um, and with the idea that somehow that's healthy and that the kids are going to, you know, rah, 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 and go out there. And no, what I see is a lot of anxiety and despondency and, and real like existential misery. I don't, you know, I see a few kids who are ambitious and talented take advantage of that discourse and do well um, in that environment. But most of the, you know, a lot of the kids are, uh, you know, maybe most, I think most like are really, that is not right for them. That is a really interesting point that I think that not enough people are talking about with all of this is how just mind numbingly depressing it is. When you, when you tell kids that everyone is an oppressor or oppressed and that the world is fundamentally systematically racist and is melting because of climate change and all of these things, you cannot divorce that from the youth mental health crisis that we're currently seeing long before COVID. So do you think that parents see the connection? Like, I think that they're not, I think that, I think that we're not, I think that we're not having a a conversation about what this does to children who have Mm -hmm. developing minds and a limited sort of window on the world and what this does to them emotionally. Do, Do you, am I, Am I no, you're up absolutely the wrong tree? no. You're absolutely the right tree. And there's a there was a great recent article. Uh, I can't remember the title, but it was by Robert Commentary Pondicio. Mag- 
Yep. In Commentary Magazine yeah. in the March yeah. issue. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, he's someone I really admire. He's been at Me this too. for a long time. And, you know, I, I urge everyone to read that article. I don't know if you get the title, but I could. Yeah, so up. it was in it was in the March issue of Commentary Magazine. He actually, um, we we were having a conversation, and he and I said all these things, and he's like, "Oh, I just wrote all of this in the March issue," and he sent me, uh, he sent me the the galley. Um, hold on, Andrew, why don't you take your last question, and I will find the name of Paul's article so that we can put it in the show notes and people can Google it afterwards. Well, I'll just follow up on, on that. I mean, so there, 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 I kind of want to answer it, but please do there, there, there. Okay. So there, so there's this whole, this whole way of teaching these kids is, is that there's, they're being harmed, right? They're being harmed by the system. And there's obviously a very, and the system is bad. The system is evil. The white supremacist system, they're teaching the BIPOC kids that they're teaching the the non-BIPOC kids that they have to be allies in this, that right, everybody in the system. So there, there is this pessimism amongst uh, there, right? So I, I think to Bethany's question was, is, you know, is this leading towards sort of a, a, you know, mental health issues and depression amongst kids? So I'll let you, I, I mean, I'll let you answer that. Um, and then I kind of want to mm-hmm. say the flip side of that, but go ahead and answer that first, if you think. Yeah. Um... Well, this is part of the plan. This is a, you know, Herbert Marcuse had talked about this. This was how the new society was going to be built. So they wanted maladapted kids. We see more maladapted kids. We see kids suffering from psychological problems. And that's what we get. And a lot of that is because I think uh, teachers that actually want to teach material and raise you know, kids that can function uh, and function well in society abandoned the field. They went into other fields. Um, maybe that's because ed schools, I mean, for obvious reasons, they were politicized the other direction. You can make more money in other fields. And so if, the, if we're going to actually fix society or try to, try to help kids uh, function better, we need, need to have competent people in those teaching positions again that yeah. have the kids best interest at heart. But there, yeah. back to the kids for one second. Yeah. There, there's a, there's a narcissistic aspect of this, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody is special there. There's a whole, I can't, my lived experience. We didn't even get into that is Trump's anything. Uh, you know, you can't say anything that I might find uncomfortable or harmful. So to some extent, these kids are made to feel special in this kind of ideology. Or at least yes maybe the BIPOC no. kids are. Yes and no. I think I think in a weird way everyone's made not to feel special in a sense. Like, but but as a collective, right? So so you're not special as an individual, but you but your little pleasures and pains are extremely important. And you know if you suffer any 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 feel bad feelings, and you are someone that is in the oppressed condition, well then that is completely our fault. And we need to take care of it. So you can't hear anything that makes you feel bad. And, you know, that's on, that's on the oppressor, right? At the same time, if you are in the oppressor class, well, then you, if you have any discomfort, well, good. Because, you know, you need to feel this, you need to feel uncomfortable. And D'Angelo says this, you know, we need to make white people feel more uncomfortable. 
so you have this complete double standard with children about what the you know what what a child is supposed to feel when experiencing the same feelings depending on their political position power position really yeah i have a friend who uh he sent me some thoughts on this cuz i'm like sort of expanding it into something else and he he argued that this is this is their objective they want to screw kids up because non-screwed up kids don't want to change the world but when you mess mm-hmm. kids up for life they feel like everything has to be completely upended and completely revolutionized and you don't get a revolution with kids who are emotionally stable and think that the world is okay yeah that's straight marcusa right there yeah 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 yeah. So um, the name of Robert's piece, which is in the March 22 issue of commentary, is the unbearable bleakness of American schooling. Contemporary education fetishizes the bad and the broken in American life. Uh, it's fantastic. It's one of the best things that I've read recently. Yeah. And that Robbie Suave did a did a piece in Reason recently about a class. I think it was in California. A, a teacher really another teacher broke ranks and talked about how. Um, her class just who were mostly Latinos like hated mm-hmm. it, hated this ethnic studies stuff. And they were all failing, um, yeah. even though they're the very population that it's supposed to help right, and right. motivate. Uh, so, yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking um, uh, whatever evening this is to chat with us. Sure. Yeah, was, no, my pleasure. This was wonderful. And, um, and this, I mean, this investigation that you wrote in the Wall Street Journal inside the woke indoctrination machine, which everyone should read. Um, I mean, this is, this is, if not a book, like a very, very long form essay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We yeah, want to make a documentary film out of it and show all the clips. Yeah. I mean, and, and I'm releasing, I'm doing some follow-up pieces in legal insurrection. Good. Good. Um, I, I, every, every four or five days or so I'm, I'm going to be able to publish. There's already some clips published there. Okay. Uh, so, you know, and also, you know, I'm putting a couple out on Twitter. Oh, what's your Twitter, Twitter handle? Tell people. Uh, yeah. Paul D as in dog Rossi, Paul D Rossi. R-O-S-S-I. Yeah. Um, one of our favorite jokes on this podcast is that it took me like what, four episodes to start following Andrew on Twitter. Yeah. Something like that. So I just looked you up and I was already following you. So we're, we're in a good position. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you for, uh, I think we ran about twice as what we expected to do. But this was a fun conversation. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Paul. Thank you. Well, thank you for listening to our conversation with Paul Rossi on this week's episode of Take Back Our Schools. We hope you enjoyed that. And if you did, uh, please leave us a review, a good review, a five-star review on wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcasts on Apple, on Spotify, wherever. That was a conversation. Woo. If, if, if you don't want to, if you listen to that conversation and don't want to go galt, I don't, I don't know what will make you want to go galt because that was, that was some pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. It's scary what's going on with our schools. Yeah. That's why we have to yeah. take them back. Or That's, talk about fashion. Or talk about fashion. Could do that too. Yeah, next we'll do episode. that on a future episode. Um, so until next time we chat, um, thank you everyone for listening. This was a lovely, disturbing conversation. And um, 
and I hope everyone took as much out of it as I did. I, I know that I'm I'm a new giant fan of Paul Rossi, whereas I was once, you know, a fan, but now I, I count giant myself fan. as a super fan. He's a good guy. Yeah, 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 he really seems it. All right, well, thank you so much. Ricochet. Join the conversation.